Welcome back to FarmCast, presented by the University of Arizona College of Pharmacy. I'm your host, Dr. Christopher Edwards, Assistant Professor and Clinical Pharmacy Specialist in Emergency Medicine. And I'm here with my co-host, Allie Bridges, Director of Communications for the UA College of Pharmacy. And this is the COVID-19 vaccine episode. Today, we have friend of the pod, Dr. Mandana Naderi, with us to answer all of our questions about the vaccine process, how it works, and what this means for the world as we pass the one-year mark of the global pandemic. Dr. Naderi, thank you so much for joining us. It's such a treat to be invited back. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming. Uh, Dr. Naderi, let's start by talking about uh, the vaccines themselves. For starters, uh, would you mind sharing which one you received? Yeah, so I received the Pfizer vaccine since that was the only vaccine that had EUA approval when I got vaccinated. Uh, what are the pros and cons of the available mRNA vaccines? So honestly, they're both pretty similar in terms of efficacy and safety data. The biggest difference is that Moderna was authorized for people aged 18 years and older versus Pfizer was approved for 16 years and older. And I know that Moderna is now testing for vaccine in 12 to 17 year olds, but they won't be available to anyone under 18 until that clinical trial data is reviewed and authorized by the FDA. And basically I recommend for people to get whatever vaccine is readily available to them since eventually we'll have more vaccine supply and it will become more widely available. So people will have the option to choose which vaccine they wanna get. So how do these mRNA vaccines work? To understand the messenger mRNA vaccine, so messenger RNA, we kind of have to understand how viruses work within our bodies. So viruses only reproduce if they can invade the cells and use mRNA to make more viral proteins and more genetic material that they can ultimately make more of that virus within our bodies. So these new viruses then leave those cells and invade new ones, and the cycle then continues on. So the mRNA vaccines use lab-created sequences of mRNA genetic material, and that encodes for instructions on how to make the spike protein that is unique to the SARS-CoV-2 virus, and that's how it's ultimately able to enter our body's cells. So this mRNA is encapsulated within lipid nanoparticles, and that coating basically protects the mRNA from enzymes in our body that would otherwise break it down and also helps the mRNA enter our dendritic cells and macrophages in our lymph nodes that are near that vaccine site. So once the spike protein is displayed on the cell's surface, this causes our immune system to basically mount an antibody and immune response and activating T cells to fight off what it thinks is an infection since the spike protein is being recognized by our bodies as a foreign object. So these antibodies then are specific to the SARS-CoV-2 virus, which is what causes COVID-19. And this means that our immune system would be ready to protect us against a future COVID-19 infection um, and basically stopping the entry of SARS-CoV-2 from getting into our cells and ultimately preventing that vaccine from growing within our bodies. So I think I followed all of that, but can you, uh, can you go ahead and just lay it down and pretend that I'm, you know, maybe... Uh, like an emergency medicine pharmacist with a short attention span. <laughs> <laughs> so basically, mRNA vaccines code for the genetic code that is specific to the spike protein on the SARS-CoV-2 virus. And basically, once you have that genetic code, it lets our body and our own cells produce that spike protein. So then our immune system can recognize that spike protein. So once you get infected with COVID-19, our body knows how to respond to it because we have that immune response. The mRNA sequence is specific to that spike protein that's found on the wild type variant of, of SARS-CoV-2. Uh, there's been a lot of talk about the different um, genetic variants that are cropping up in uh, various regions. Um, will this vaccine work against these new variants of COVID that are coming out? This is still being studied. I think we have some very promising emerging data coming out saying that, yes, we should still have some protection against these emerging variants, but ultimately we need more information about that. So it's emerging and hopefully, you know, we'll have more of that data available to us um, in order to determine next steps in, in terms of our immunity against COVID-19. The most recent player on the market are the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. And this one uses kind of a, a novel system, right, with that uh, adenovirus vector. Um, so can you tell us a little bit about the Johnson & Johnson vaccine and, and how that one works? 
Yeah, so basically the general concept of providing that genetic material for the spike protein still applies in this case. So that's ultimately the genetic material that's uh, included in the adenovirus vaccine. So basically these adenoviruses, they're relatively rare common cold viruses. And for Johnson & Johnson, they used adenovirus 26. And basically all this means is that it's been modified so that it can't replicate inside the human body, but they inserted the genetic sequence for that spike protein within that virus. So then when you get this vaccine, basically it's allowing your body to, again, try to recognize how to create that spike protein and how to mount an immune response against it, which then provides protection against COVID-19. And then just to, just to kind of run that down. So if somebody just got immunized and their body's making spike protein, um, they will not test positive for uh, COVID on a nasal swab. Is that correct? Yes, that is correct. So okay. these vaccines will not, basically you're not shedding virus for those tests to, to detect COVID-19. So you will not have a positive test from the vaccines. Cool. But the antibody tests, if they're testing to see if you have antibodies to COVID-19, that would likely be positive, right? After a certain amount of time after vaccination? Yes. So it depends on the antibody test. Some antibody tests out there detect natural immunity and some of them detect vaccine mediated immunity. And so oh. basically it, it's looking for that spike protein when it's vaccine mediated immunity. So, you know, depending on what test you get, um, you know, I, for, for my purposes, it's, you know, most people will know that it's vaccine mediated immunity if it is SARS-CoV-2 positive antibodies, but yeah, all depends on, on which test, but for the most part, you should, in theory, have those circulating antibodies. Can you explain the difference, first off, uh, between the efficacy rates within those three different vaccines? You know, we've heard that Pfizer has a 95% efficacy rate, um, Moderna 94.1, and then Johnson & Johnson has now been shown to have a 66% efficacy rate 27 days after you've received the single dose. Um, should patients try to get the vaccine that has the highest efficacy rate, you know, kind of break that down for us. Absolutely. That is a really great question. So basically comparing the efficacy of these vaccines is really challenging because there were differences in the designs of the phase three clinical trials that were ultimately what they utilized to determine whether or not to approve these vaccines. So Pfizer and Moderna's trials, they were both tested for any symptomatic COVID-19 infection. So Pfizer had started counting cases from seven days after receiving the second dose of the vaccine versus Moderna, they waited until day 14 to start counting those cases. And in terms of Johnson & Johnson, they kind of took a completely different approach. They wanted to first off see whether one dose of vaccine had protected against moderate to severe COVID-19 illness. And basically how they had defined that in their trial is a combination of a positive COVID-19 test and at least one symptom such as shortness of breath beginning 14 to 28 days after that single dose. So ultimately because of the difference in these trial outcomes, making those direct comparisons between the vaccines is kind of like comparing apples to oranges. Um, you know, it's really unfortunate that the Johnson & Johnson vaccine came out after the mRNA vaccines because, you know, initially if we had a vaccine that had 50% efficacy from the start, this wouldn't even be a question. That's such a great feat. And last summer, the FDA released a set of guidelines outlining the approval process for COVID-19 vaccines and basically stated that any product that receives that approval will need to prevent or decrease the severity of COVID-19 disease by at least 50%. So an important thing that we have to keep in mind is that all of these clinical trials were all performed in different areas of the world and they were performed at different times. And so that difference in efficacy is a better indication of how the vaccine will work given the current variants that are circulating within the community. So for example, the Johnson & Johnson vaccine was studied in Brazil, in South Africa, and the United States, which all have their own emerging variants. And the only country that it didn't have that trial in was the United Kingdom. And so basically when we're looking at the initial 95% and 94% efficacy with Pfizer and Moderna vaccines, that basically reflects the original strain of COVID-19. And now that we have these emerging variants, we need more data to see how those vaccines will protect us against those emerging variants. 
nowadays, all of these companies are trying to test both booster doses. So we need to basically accommodate these variants. And I think that's our way of combating that. And if they need to alter or tweak the genetic code that's within these vaccines, um, then we can ultimately see if we need to get that booster dose to keep up the immunity. But in general, your recommendation for anyone would be whichever is available to you, get that. Don't necessarily pay attention to those efficacy rates. Absolutely. I think ultimately anything that's above 50% efficacy is a win in my book. So whatever's more available to you in your community, it's worth going after that. You know, the other thing that we've heard about recently, uh, Bharat Biotech, uh, which is based out of India, has um, released some of their interim analysis from their phase three trial uh, for their vaccine candidate, Covaxin. Um, and that's demonstrated an 81% efficacy. You know, and like I mentioned, they're based out of India. How many other countries are currently in the process of working on a vaccine right now? So I know that there are 55 vaccine candidates oh, wow. that are in phase two and three worldwide. So right, that's, that's a lot. Yeah. Um, and you know, some of these countries include Japan, China, India, and a number of European countries. Um, there's actually a COVID-19 vaccine tracker that's via the New York Times website, um, and it gets updated daily to basically show how many vaccine candidates and contenders there are out there and which phase of the clinical trial that they're in or whether or not they're approved for use in different countries. So it's a really useful tool just to kind of keep up with what's going on out there. And then should patients continue to wear masks and physically distance even after they've received the vaccine? What sort of recommendations are you making to your patients? Yeah, absolutely. So there is a growing body of evidence that suggests fully vaccinated people are less likely to have asymptomatic infection and potentially less likely to transmit SARS-CoV-2 virus to others. Um, but we still have a lot of unanswered questions out there that need to be addressed before we can relax those mitigation strategies. So we need to better understand how long that vaccine immunity lasts, as well as how effective these vaccines are against these emerging COVID-19 variants. And ultimately, there's no way of knowing if you're in a big crowded place who's vaccinated and who's not. And so we utilize kind of the masks until we have more percentage of the population that's vaccinated, as well as that emerging data regarding, you know, these COVID-19 variants and, and the vaccine efficacy in those situations. So, you know, it's really important to take kind of a multifaceted approach with, you know, this vaccine rollout and still taking those basic prevention measures as, such as wearing a mask, washing our hands, avoiding large crowds and physical distancing, basically in order to overcome this virus. So, I know the CDC had basically mentioned they took a risk versus benefit analysis into consideration when they had recent updates regarding gatherings for people who are vaccinated. And they mentioned that the benefits of relaxing some of those measures, such as the quarantine requirements and reducing that social isolation period may ultimately outweigh the risk of those fully vaccinated people who are getting sick with COVID-19 or transmitting that virus to others. Can you talk a little bit about what that effort looks like, right? How are we going to vaccinate the country and the world? Um, can, obviously, we can't talk about, you know, the whole global effort, but let's just talk about um, the U.S. And, and what this process looks like at the, the federal, state, and local level. Um, I think we're all kind of familiar with this phased approach that's being taken, but uh, can you talk a little bit about how those phases work, how they were developed, and, and sort of what that process looks like? Yeah, so I just want to explain first how kind of this old overall process looks like since it might help you know put all those pieces together in this puzzle. When the FDA authorizes or approves a COVID-19 vaccine, the Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices, this is known as ACIP or ACIP, so they hold a public meeting to review all of the available data about that vaccine. Before making recommendations, ACIP reviews all of the clinical trial information that includes who was receiving the vaccine. So, you know, the age, the race, ethnicity, or underlying medical conditions in that patient population. They also account for how these different groups had responded to the vaccine overall, and the side effects and the safety profiles of each of those vaccine contenders. From those data, then ACIP votes on whether or not to recommend the vaccine. And then they also recommend um, you know, who should be offered these COVID-19 uh, vaccine candidates first when those supplies are limited. Ultimately, it's up to the state and local jurisdictions to decide how they want to incorporate ACIP's recommendations 
for their own vaccine allocation and distribution plans. So at least for Arizona, um, at the beginning and planning the COVID-19 vaccine efforts, um, the Arizona Department of Health Services basically engaged with a wide range of state, local, tribal, and healthcare stakeholders who had had experience during the 2009 H1N1 vaccination campaign, as well as recent mass vaccination campaigns during the 2019 hepatitis A outbreak in Arizona. Those key participants basically you know, included ADHS and had a variety of healthcare sta stakeholders across the state. And they also had members of the Vaccine and Antiviral Prioritization Advisory Committee, also known as VAPAC. And this is basically a group of subject matter experts who are responsible for reviewing the CDC and ASIP recommendations. And then ultimately they all decide how they want to adopt that into Arizona's model for vaccine allocation. So, you know, when ADHS comes out with their recommendations, ultimately it comes down to the, the counties and the local jurisdictions to decide how they want to approach utilizing all of these different recommendations on board. So it's kind of a tiered approach. So let's talk a little bit about pharmacists, right? So it's a pharmacy podcast. Uh, we're both pharmacists. So how are pharmacists being incorporated uh, into this effort? From my standpoint, you know, being a pharmacist who's involved in that emergency COVID-19 response on a state level is super exciting. I don't think there's enough pharmacists out there doing what I'm doing. I'm really, you know, grateful for the opportunity to contribute my subject matter expertise for that effort. So that's one part, a personal plug and an exciting thing for me. Um, but initially, there was a partnership with the CDC and CVS and Walgreens Pharmacy to vaccinate residents of assisted living and long-term care facilities, given that they were some of the most vulnerable populations that were affected by COVID-19. So this program is expected to be completed by April, which is quite amazing since they started at the end of December and really highlighted how pharmacists can play such a huge role in our national pandemic response. And I think moving forward as more vaccine supply is available, pharmacists at your community pharmacies are gonna be the ones who are really leading that effort in getting most of the population vaccinated. And, and how do you envision uh, that process working? Is it gonna be similar to how uh, community pharmacies and community pharmacists administer influenza uh, immunizations or do you think that, you know, the, the large chains are going to uh, expand the personnel uh, that are available for that vaccine effort? Or is it just going to be something that's added on to their already fairly busy work schedule? Like if you had a crystal ball and, and could kind of guess what this is going to look like. I was going to say that's a million dollar question. And I don't think, you know, I, I have a full answer to that. But what I've heard, um, you know, anecdotally is that they are hiring more staff at some of these pharmacies to basically be full-time immunizers and, you know, going out to these vulnerable communities, going out to these long-term care facilities, you know, that is someone's job full-time is to immunize that population. And I know a lot of community pharmacies in Arizona are now able to train pharmacy technicians to be able to administer vaccines. And this is an awesome precedent. And I really hope moving forward, this will continue beyond the pandemic. Um, but ultimately, it's kind of an all hands on deck situation. And I think, you know, we need to engage as many pharmacists as possible into this response, instead of adding on that extra workload to pharmacists who are already doing amazing work within those community settings. So, you know, it'll take some time and we'll have to wait and see how this all plays out. But I do think having full time immunizers is kind of in the direction that we should move as a profession. I agree. And and. Just from a vaccine distribution standpoint as well, I know that that's been sort of one of the challenges that we've encountered with these mass immunization sites is, is you know, ensuring that the vaccine is getting where it needs to be. Um, how how do you think that distribution process is going to look like for, you know, the, the community pharmacies when it becomes available uh, to to patients at their, their neighborhood community pharmacy? Do you think there will be certain sites that have vaccine available or do you think it's going to be sort of broadly distributed to, to all of the community pharmacies? You know, I can tell you right now nationwide that there are about 14,000 pharmacies across the United States that wow. have received a federal allocation. So that's a lot, right? Yeah. Yeah. And I think, I think that equates to about 14 million doses that are given out in community pharmacy settings. So I can tell you for Arizona, that means about 450 uh, pharmacy stores um, now have the vaccine supply. So it's still limited because we don't have, you know, full vaccine supply at our disposal. Um, but there's, you know, several different uh, community pharmacies that are now carrying this, at least within the state of Arizona. And I think, you know, 
we're trying to change how you know these storage requirements are met. I know Pfizer had recently updated that you don't need the ultra cold freezing temperatures to you know uh, move this vaccine from place to place and transporting and storing it. Um, and that's something that I never really thought much about. But when you're trying to store vaccines, I mean, you have all these other medications within a pharmacy. That's space that you have to allocate, especially in a time where the demand is really high. Um, you know, so ultimately it'll come down to can the pharmacies you know, give up that extra storage space to, to have enough doses to serve the demands from their patients. So that'll be interesting to see. But I think, you know, eventually the goal is to have this widely available and whatever that means. I, it doesn't mean every single community pharmacy will have doses. I'm not sure. I'm not really, you know, able to tell what that'll look like. Ideally, yes, that would be a nice, you know, feat for us. But, um, you know, ultimately, I think, just trying to get as many partners on board with this and as many, you know, immunizers, you know, certified as we can is ultimately the way that we're going to do this. You mentioned um, briefly that the Pfizer vaccine, um, the cold storage, they they were now recommending that it doesn't necessarily need to be stored at negative 80 degrees or, or whatever that temperature was. Is that simply because they now just have more information about it or has something changed in the, um, uh, the makeup of the vaccine or what, what, uh, how did that come about? So basically it came down to, you know, they knew it was a logistical issue and it was a barrier of getting that Pfizer vaccine out to communities that don't have those storage requirements available to them or don't have, you know, the delivery system to ensure, you know, the integrity and the storage of those vaccines. So they ultimately just have to test it and, you know, make sure that all of those vaccine components weren't degraded. There was no issues with the vaccine integrity itself. So once they had that data, they were able to make that change. But, okay. you know, if they didn't have the data, they couldn't, they had to stick with what they had. And because they knew they were at a disadvantage because of those storage requirements, they really tried to advocate and they found out, no, wait, everything's fine. Just at these normal, you know, freezer temperatures. So, you know, that was an exciting shift as well. Cause I know that was a huge barrier for getting that Pfizer vaccine out there. Mm -hmm, for sure. One of the challenges that came with that deep cold storage was you could really only use Pfizer in major urban areas that had freezers that could go down to negative 70. So that made Moderna look much more attractive to rural areas that may not have had those storage requirements and, and things like that. So with the current lay of the land and the recommendations that are coming out regarding storage, like what do you see each of the vaccines roles being in this mass immunization effort? Is there any difference between them or is there like a, a population or a, a niche for each of these different uh, vaccines that you think makes sense? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think, you know, initially when we only had Pfizer and Moderna, so this is pre Johnson and Johnson, they were trying to reserve that Moderna for that exact reason. They were trying to reserve it for those rural populations who are not in those big cities so that it's much easier to get the vaccine out there and store it in those communities. Um, and also it comes down to a reconstitution issue. And if you don't have the ability or the expertise of somebody who can reconstitute that Pfizer vaccine and, you know, draw it up from that vial, then that's already a barrier in itself versus the Moderna vaccine, that vial, you can draw straight from the vial, um, your doses that you need. And so, you know, I think, and, and I think it will continue this way is, you know, Moderna should be reserved for the places that just don't necessarily have the same storage requirements that are required for Pfizer or the space for the Pfizer vaccine. Um, and now that we have Johnson & Johnson, I think that's going to be a niche for the populations that have trouble and loss to follow up or don't necessarily have access to healthcare who live in a remote area. Since it is only one dose, I mean, that is where it's really going to come into handy because there are a lot of people who don't have the transportation to go back in a month to get that second dose. And so that'll kind of be its, its claim to fame is trying to get to those populations that have a lot of barriers in preventing, you know, that vaccine follow-up and getting that second dose. And, you know, it doesn't, it also doesn't need to be reconstituted. So that's, that's a perk in itself. And, you know, it's, we're still kind of a, it's a balancing act and with vaccine supply, we're just kind of accepting what's available to us out there. So 
I, I haven't really seen too much changing from that respect. It's just more whatever you're able to get, get it and get it out into people's arms. But in the future, really trying to target those vulnerable populations that don't necessarily have the same access. I think that's the direction we're going to go and utilizing the, the one dose vaccine option for those people to ensure that they have some level of immunity, you know, versus getting two doses and, and having to logistically figure that out for those populations. That's a great point. I mean, I didn't even consider the fact that it might be difficult to get people to return or, you know, that they might not have the ability, either they lack transportation or time to take off work to come in and go through that whole process. I mean, I know you have to sit there for 15 minutes if you're going to your doctor, you know, you might have a wait there. It's not an easy thing to ask of people, um, particularly if they're already hesitant about the whole thing. Um, I, I'm curious, you know, we didn't cover this before, but just for our listeners, if you wouldn't mind talking about what happens if someone only gets the first dose, do they, is it just completely, uh, inefficient or does, do they have some protection? What does that look like? Yeah. And that is a good question as well. And ultimately you kind of get some level of immunity with that first dose. So I think for Pfizer is about 55% immunity, um, but you're basically not getting that full immune response. So, you know, you're getting partial immunity, which to me is better than nothing, honestly, I'll, I'll take it. But, um, you know, there's no harm if you wait a couple of weeks after, you know, with other vaccines that we have, some of the booster doses are four months later, or six months later. So, you know, there's no harm associated with, going outside of that 21 or 28 day timeframe for the mRNA vaccines, but it isn't the full level of the 95 and 94% efficacy. You know, that's basically happening two weeks after they get their second dose. And, you know, I've heard of individuals who got COVID-19, you know, even after getting their first dose or even after their second dose, but it was still not 14 days. And so, uh, you know, if you want to achieve that level of immunity and, and hope for that, that's basically what it comes down to is, you're not going to get that full immunity with one dose. And I think now we're trying to, you know, with these emerging variants, I think now these COVID vaccine contenders are trying to come up with multi doses and those boosters over time to, to keep up with those emerging variants. So we'll see how that level of immunity wanes over time and, and what, you know, what is required, what's the time frame that we need to get a second dose in a booster, and then how effective will that second booster be in our long-term immunity. So to be determined. And then we've talked a little bit about boosters, um, you know, potentially um, modifying boosters for different variants or, you know, uh, potentially needing a booster to um, just, you know, refresh our immune system's memory about uh, uh, what the wild type virus or native virus looks like. Um, is there any evidence to suggest that that immunity wanes over time? I know it hasn't even been a year since uh, the first batch of people in the trials were, were immunized, but is there anything to suggest that we, we should be concerned about winning immunity and, and, and making it seem like these boosters are going to be necessary, assuming that uh, the initial vaccine still covers, you know, emerging variants and things? Um, I haven't personally seen any emerging evidence about that waning immunity, but I think it's just a matter of time. And, and once we get more data out there about, you know, being at the year mark, you know, mm -hmm. then we'll start kind of knowing, okay, well, people who got vaccinated back last summer, you know, what are their levels of antibodies circulating? And, you know, we could kind of make those decisions when that time comes. But I know the CDC has been very conservative with their recommendations on, you know, quarantining. They, they said three months after vaccination or six months. This is all arbitrary. No one actually knows the answer to this. And Good. it's just a matter of time. <laughs> we'll figure that stuff out. And then just a, another follow-up question on the boosters. So like if an emerging variant does become problematic, um, I think you mentioned earlier that, you know, the mRNA vaccines are pretty nice because you basically just need to figure out the mRNA sequence for that new variant and, and basically build the vaccine uh, based off of that. It, it would probably un undergo another EUA, um, but you would expect a pretty similar side effect profile and we could use basically the same uh, infrastructure and, and systems to, to push out another mass immunization campaign if necessary uh, with one of those variants. Is that sound about right or... That's, that's what I'm envisioning. And I think, you know, the question remains again, like we just brought up in terms of the immunity where, you know, what is your level of immunity and level of circulating antibodies after X amount of time from your vaccines. So basically, depending on how much, you know, antibodies are circulating within your immune system, and you get that booster dose of the vaccine, 
you may in theory have more of, you know, an adverse effect happen in terms of after getting the vaccine, but you know, mm -hmm. we expect that that immune response is something that you want and you should be excited to have because that oh, means yeah. your, your body's working, you know, your immune system is trying to protect you from this foreign object. And so, you know, to me, it's like, well, if I didn't get an immune response then I'd be a little bit disappointed, <laughs> you know? So you, you had mentioned, you know, that, that quite a few community pharmacies already have vaccine supply available. Um, do you have any insight as to sort of a timeline for when this may be more broadly available? Yeah, I mean, ultimately, first, I want to highlight that this has been a really historic public health effort. Um, mm. You know, we've had 100 million doses administered within the United States. Oh. And we're only about five days away from that 100 day mark of when that first EUA was issued for a COVID-19 vaccine. So awesome. logistically, yeah, logistically, this was a huge effort to get so many people vaccinated within a short amount of time. This is basically equating to about 12% of the US population right now being fully vaccinated. Um, you know, just last week, President Biden had announced that he would be directing all of the states across the United States um, to allow, you know, American adults to be eligible for that COVID-19 vaccine by May 1st. And a lot of this comes out to engaging a lot of different, you know, drug companies to help with that supply chain effort and engaging a lot of different partners and, and them helping these manufacturers, you know, achieve that, that goal of producing, you know, vaccines on a very broad scale. And so it basically just comes down to how many vaccines are we able to produce? And then the next side of that is, okay, once we have these produced, how are we going to get them out, especially to those vulnerable communities that are really hard to access. I know in Arizona, there's some cities that are very far away, you know, from the big hubs of Phoenix and Tucson. And so we have to figure out a way of reaching out to those populations to get those vaccines to them as well. Um, and I think, you know, over time, it's getting easier because we're learning kind of from our mistakes or, you know, shortcomings as a whole with this response. But really, we're, we're doing a great job so far, and we just need to keep up that momentum. And we need to encourage people to get those vaccines because then we're going to be on the flip side of it where we're going to have a lot of vaccine supply and not as much demand to get it. And then that'll be a whole other set of problems that we're going to have to overcome. But we want that momentum there. We want people to get excited about getting this vaccine and just kind of hanging tight and staying patient and just kind of going through those motions because it, it is a really hard logistical effort to get these vaccines out to so many different communities. But it's, it's working. It's happening. We just have to continue that. Definitely. I was actually just talking to a friend about this earlier today. Um, you know, I think that we're still seeing uh, a lot of people who are really excited to get the vaccine, right? Since we're, we're doing this phased approach, anytime they, they open it up to a new group of people, you've got all the people who are just like really anxiously awaiting their turn and, and signing up as soon as they can. And so, you know, we're, we're seeing, you know, these schedules get booked really far out because people are really excited and enthusiastic about that. And I'm sure that once we open it up to the public at large, you know, per uh, the president's direction, um, we're going to see a big wave of people, a big influx of people who are going to try to sign up as, as soon as they can. So um, do you think with the people who are uh, super excited about getting the vaccine, do you think that would be enough to reach the threshold of herd immunity? Or do you think we'll get to the point that um we're going to have to really chase down those reluctant folks to uh, <laughs> to reach that tipping point. Yeah, I'm really glad you're asking this question because there is a lot of discussion right now out there about the concept of herd immunity and whether or not we're going to be able to achieve it. So there are several obstacles that we face in achieving herd immunity that are present for us now. So we're having these emerging new variants of SARS-CoV-2 that are potentially more infectious and possibly more deadly. And they're better able to dodge immunity in order to keep surviving and getting transmitted in the community. And this rapidly evolving virus will ultimately be one step ahead of us. And we may need booster doses to keep up with these evolving variants. So, you know, there's encouraging evidence right now coming out that vaccine induced immunity is more robust than natural immunity. And most of the vaccines will still remain highly effective, even against those variant strains in preventing hospitalization and deaths from COVID-19. So I think a more realistic goal that we need to focus on is preventing serious COVID-19 illness and death by vaccinating as many people as possible and as quickly as possible. You know, this virus will continue to circulate within the community, but it won't nearly be as deadly. 
And, you know, basically it'll kind of come down to being like influenza where, you know, we've learned how to coexist with the flu by vaccinating annually and having that long-term exposure. And, you know, we have to remember that the flu still kills about 30,000 people a year and not this year because we've seen decreased flu rates, but, you know, it's not killing 500,000 people like SARS-CoV-2 has. And so, you know, we have to be able to keep up with that science and learn to coexist with COVID-19 ultimately to decrease its burden on our healthcare system and our livelihoods. So it's not necessarily about having 70, 80, 90% of the population vaccinated against this, but it's, you know, if we're able to decrease that burden on our healthcare system and keep things at bay, that's probably a more realistic goal that we need to achieve. And, and the only way we're going to get there is to have as many people vaccinated as possible. Do you see um, the COVID vaccine as being something that might be administered annually or even those boosters that you referenced earlier? Yeah, I think it's hard to predict the future, um, but yeah. just giving, giving the uh, emerging variants, I, I don't see that being kind of an outlandish statement to make is that, you know, we may need a booster and ultimately it's, it could be something that's co-formulated with the flu vaccine. So you don't necessarily have to get two separate ones, but you know, if we need to keep priming our immune system and, and having it ready to respond to these emerging variants, to me, that's a win-win situation because, you know, I'm, I, I just know from the long-term effects of COVID-19, I would rather just get a booster dose just to know that, you know, I have some level of immunity. So even if I do get infected with COVID-19, it may be much severe, uh, much less severe uh, disease that's associated with it compared to if I didn't get vaccinated at all. And sure. so, you know, who knows what's in store, but I wouldn't technically be surprised if, if a booster was in our future. And I know these clinical trials now with all these different vaccine contenders are studying this and looking into that. Another question I had, you know, if we're currently not vaccinating portions of the population, those under 18 or those under 16, are we leaving ourselves vulnerable to this continuing to spread in our in our communities? You know, especially as we bring students back into school environments, am I thinking about this in the wrong way? You know, what's your take on that? You know, I, that's a great question. And ultimately, as long as the virus is able to circulate within the community, you know, that risk is still going to be present to us. And, you know, the reason why it's not available to children is because it wasn't studied in that, in yeah. that group. And so, you know, we basically have to go through those proper measures to make sure that these vaccines are both efficacious and safe for that, you know, specific demographic. And I think I read somewhere that it's like 15 or 20% of the US population is under the age of 18 or something. So that's a pretty significant amount of people. Um, and I know there's a lot of studies coming out from the CDC about, you know, um, COVID-19 transmission within school settings and how they're not really seeing it too much, um, you know, if those masking and, and mitigation strategies are in place. And so, you know, until we have a vaccine candidate that's available, for everyone involved, you know, those children can bring that home back to their parents. And so we have to consider children as unvaccinated individuals. And per the CDC guidance that came out about, you know, gatherings with vaccinated individuals, they do have those caveats about unvaccinated. How do you approach, you know, vaccinated versus unvaccinated people? And that includes children. And so taking those mitigation strategies are still necessary because ultimately we need to make sure that vast majority of the population is covered, you know, with that immunity so that we're not experiencing, you know, a rapid transmission in one amongst each other in the community. So I want to switch gears now a little bit to uh, talking about vaccine hesitancy. And this is something that we've heard a lot about in the last couple of months um, since, you know, vaccines have been uh, on the forefront of everyone's minds and, and becoming available. Um, and obviously there's a long history in this country of, um, distrust in the healthcare system um, and big pharma. And, you know, I, I would love to hear as a pharmacist and a public health advocate, you know, from your experience, can you share any tips for making people feel more comfortable with the vaccine? What would you say to a patient that was unsure? Absolutely. So basically rule number one is don't always believe what you read on the internet. And I, I know that should be, you know, <laughs> go without saying, but it's still happening to this day. Sure. So we just need to emphasize and recommend if people have, you know, specific questions or concerns about COVID-19, you know, they could go to their local health department websites. The Arizona Department of Health Services has a great frequently asked questions document on their website. And ultimately the CDC, they have a lot of useful information um, that address specific concerns 
concerns people have regarding these vaccines. So research actually shows that healthcare professionals are patients' most trusted source of information when it comes to these vaccines. So there was a recent Kaiser Family Foundation poll that had found 55% of adults say they now want to get a COVID-19 vaccine as soon as it's available to them, or they've already received their first dose. So that's up from 47% in January and 34% in December. Okay. So people ultimately are more likely to get a vaccine if they know someone who has already received it. So we as healthcare providers should encourage those healthy conversations with our family, our friends and our patients to talk through those specific hesitations and, and address them head on. So we need to encourage that kind of conversation. And ultimately, if people have specific concerns about their own health status, encouraging them to go to their own primary care physician or provider to, to address the vaccine safety for them as an individual. But you know, the CDC website has actual trainings dedicated to helping healthcare professionals and how we can communicate and address these vaccine hesitancy with our patients. So, you know, ultimately we have the ability to empower individuals with that information, that knowledge that they need to make the ultimate decision of getting that vaccine. And, you know, the one concern that I hear quite often is that we don't have enough long-term data to see if these vaccines are safe. And of course, that is very true. It hasn't even been a full year yet since the first people got vaccinated with the COVID-19 vaccines in those trials. You know, but we are learning more every day about how COVID-19 infection itself has a lot of damaging long-term effects that we're still learning about. So to me, I would rather risk the small chance of having an adverse effect from the vaccines versus the effects of COVID-19 infection. And so really it's the information's out there. And if you're ever struggling to find that information, going directly to the source, don't just consult Facebook or you know these fake internet sites that are coming up. If you really wanna go look at the trials, all of them are available online. If you are able to you know, break down that data, if you have that scientific knowledge, you know, you're more than welcome to, to look at it yourself. And if you don't feel comfortable in, in interpreting scientific data, there's so many resources out there from individuals and professionals who do, do this every day in their lives. And they are, you know, providing these frequently asked questions that are widely available on the internet that people can go there and see which specific questions they have and how it gets answered. That's such a good point too about, you know, the, the risk of adverse effects from the vaccine versus the risks of adverse effects from um, COVID infection is something that I've, I've definitely discussed with people who had some vaccine hesitancy and, and it really seemed to sort of break down a barrier there. Um, most of the adverse effects that we're seeing from the vaccine are, are transient, right? Even if you feel crummy after the vaccine, you feel bad for a day or two and then you get better um, versus COVID-19 where, you know, you're seeing all of these really sort of almost bizarre long-term effects that we don't even know how long they're going to last because we haven't seen them resolve yet. So yeah, that's definitely a, a really great point to bring up. And, and thank you for uh, including that. Uh, any tips on the best way to combat misinformation that's being spread around the internet? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm involved um, with the ADHS Vaccine Safety Monitoring and Messaging Committee. And that's literally our whole entire goal is to combat that misinformation via social media campaigns or webinars or, or however we can reach out to, you know, those target populations that we know from surveys are unwilling to get vaccinated or have hesitations for that vaccination. Um, so basically, this is all through trying to get the message out. And however we can get that message out is the best way possible. So I know ADHS has had a lot of, you know, commercials on TV and trying to get the information out there. Their website is getting constantly updated and I help contribute to those website updates and you know, we're just trying to get the message out, but really it comes down to those individual conversations. I think ultimately as a healthcare provider, I feel obligated that if somebody has specific concerns and they're willing to hear me out, I make it very clear to them that let's have a discussion about this. I am not judging you for having these hesitations as an adult, you have to make that decision ultimately what's best for you, but let me try to combat that. Let me try to answer what I know. And if there's something I don't know, I offer, I say, look, let me go look this up and let me get back to you. And you would not believe how many people are saying, thank you for not judging me for this. Cause I think there's a lot of, you know, <laughs> just it's getting kind of skewed and it's 
kind of becoming a judgy thing. Well, how could you not believe in science? And, Mm -hmm. you know, there's, there's a lot of different factors to this and it is really hard to digest. This did kind of come out very quickly. And, you know, even myself at the very beginning, I had that healthy skepticism as well, but what did I do to combat that? I went to the data myself. I read through, I got familiar with the topic and, you know, because I am, you know, subject matter expert in infectious diseases, I had that advantage where I knew how to interpret that data and make the right decision for myself and therefore for my patients, for my family, and for my friends. And so, you know, I encourage anyone who has any questions to reach out to those people in their lives that have gotten the vaccine, hear about their experiences, or, you know, look on the internet at the CDC website. They have so many great tools and information out there to help you make that decision for yourself. Absolutely. And sharing that personal experience, I feel is really effective as well, because, you know, and, and being honest with people, like, Similar to you, I had that initial bit of skepticism. I was a little bit, um, I don't want to say reluctant to get the vaccine, but I was certainly like, I'm going to go ahead and read these papers and and just make sure that everything looks good before I become an acolyte for this and before I get it myself. Uh, And even having been familiar with the data, I was still like a little bit nervous going in to get the first injection. Um, But I I think that sharing that experience with other people, um, particularly if they're kind of hesitant, it makes them feel comfortable and, and, you know, they can acknowledge the fact that like, oh, no, no, it's, it's okay to be a little scared, but it's you know, ultimately, this is the, the right thing to do. And, and then again, similar to you, like I, I reviewed all the data um, as it was coming out. And I think that one of the things that really made me feel confident um, was that my analysis of the data made it, my interpretation was that it looked good. And then every infectious diseases, critical care, emergency medicine, you know, every physician, pharmacist, um, you know, real expert in that area that I trust uh, basically came to the same conclusion that I did. And that made me feel really comfortable with it. And, uh, and I think that was, that was definitely like that insight was one where I was just like, okay, there's no reason to be afraid of this. Like this is, we're all on the same page. I have to echo that sentiment because ultimately you want to make sure that your own conclusions are kind of what everyone else is thinking too. And, you know, it's interesting having those discussions with other healthcare professionals, you know, maybe they had caught something that I didn't necessarily catch during my initial read through Mm -hmm. and, you know, like, oh, that's actually a good point. Or, oh, I didn't even like consider that in my analysis and, and my drawing my conclusions for this. So, you know, that healthy conversation of, oh, well, what are the next steps? What do we need to see in future trials, you know, to make that decision on, okay, should I get this vaccine or not? But yeah, personal experience really goes a long way in, in making feel com- everyone feel comfortable because this is new for everyone. You know, we're all in the same boat here. It doesn't matter if you're, you know, a healthcare professional or not a healthcare professional. And so we're all trying to work through that together. And I think just knowing that it, you know, I'm an open book. I'm very transparent when it comes to my experiences. I have no conflicts of interest in that respect. I'm not gaining anything politically or financially from promoting this vaccine, but I'm looking out for, you know, our community and our well-being because we all want to get back to normal and, and whatever that normal may look like is to be determined. But the faster we can get there, the better we off we are, you know, as a nation. And so ultimately, you know, it comes down to just promoting the vaccine. And if there's information that people are still hesitant about, going out to the source and looking for those answers. And, you know, I definitely, I don't want to lend any credence to any of these theories, but I I am curious if you could share with us, you know, maybe one or two or just one uh, of some of the wildest things that you might have heard. Maybe a fellow colleague has told you about something that they've read online or, or, you know, I'm I'm curious about that. Um, So I think, you know, we've heard a lot of different wild things. And so I guess the, the wildest theory that I heard was, you know, since the mRNA vaccines contain like that genetic material, um, you know, there were basically people coming out saying that this genetic material will be integrated into your genome and then it could cause mutations and it may cause you harm. It may alter the way that we think as humans. Oh, and yeah, and like the joke of like, oh yeah, like I didn't grow a third arm or a new limb <laughs> from, from getting this vaccine. So, but that's what we have to emphasize now. Like, no, like this gets degraded very quickly within your body. So it's not going to go into your DNA. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, but ultimately if people have that question, if it's out there, it kind of, you know, has that idea in people's minds. And then they start saying, oh, wait a minute. Like, is that really happening? If, if I see it on the internet? Um, so that was probably the funniest one I heard, but, you know, we've heard like the, the 5g thing or, you know, I'm like, oh, well, most people these days have a cell phone that tracks them. So, you know, why do we need to inject that, um, you know, into our arms, but a lot of weird things out there, but, you know, some of them 
are more ridiculous than others. And, you know, we still have to have those conversations if people have these concerns and address them. I actually met somebody who was worried about, you know, their DNA being altered because they didn't understand the science behind it. And I literally sat there and I drew out a ribosome and an mRNA and talked about how quickly it gets degraded. And the person ended up getting vaccinated like a week later. So like you can literally combat this misinformation if you're just like non-judgmental and cool about it. It's it, Absolutely. You know, seeing this massive vaccination effort across the country, you know, from my understanding, most people are not being charged for this vaccine. It's been paid for um, and subsidized both the research and um, the administration by the government, the federal government and the states. How do you see this as changing healthcare in the U.S.? I mean, do you see this as um, creating like a fundamental shift in the way that we view access to healthcare in this country? I mean, we've I've never in my lifetime obviously seen something of this magnitude, um, and I'm really curious about how it's going to affect healthcare and how we view it overall in the long run. I'm really glad you're asking this because I think access to healthcare should not be a barrier within this country. And especially when it comes to preventative healthcare services and immunizations as a whole. Um, you know, I know right now vaccines are for the most part considered part of, you know, prevention strategies and, and insurance companies will supplement that. But what if people are uninsured? You know, then it comes down to, are they expected to pay out of pocket for something that is a preventative service to ultimately benefit the community? So. I hope to see that kind of in the future where we are subsidizing these you know, healthcare measures and, and promoting preventative healthcare services across the board and not just limiting it to people who are insured. So we're, we're basically opening up that healthcare and, and this is gonna take a huge system change. This is gonna be a system overhaul, but I think this is kind of setting the stage for you know, we can subsidize these services and ultimately the cost that we, you know, are utilizing for, for getting these people vaccinated will be far lower than the healthcare burden and the costs of caring for patients who are, you know, with COVID-19 or any disease for that matter, you know, so I think maybe this is going to set the stage and, and we'll start seeing that in the future of American healthcare, but it is very exciting to know that you know, financially, this is not something that should be a barrier for anyone. Anyone who wants the vaccine should be able to get it, which is great. Absolutely. And that's such a good point because, you know, this is a perfect example of an ounce of prevention being worth a pound of cure, right? If you look at the cost of taking care of a critically ill person who's in respiratory failure because of uh, SARS-CoV-2, active COVID-19 infection, the cost of that care could immunize, you know, probably hundreds of people, right? Um, so yeah, no, it's such a good point. And, and I really do hope that that leads to a, a fundamental shift in the way we view preventative medicine in this country. And we need a lot of advocates in our profession to, to help drive that point home and how pharmacists can really assist with that effort. Thank you so much for being our first return guest and sharing all of your insight and wisdom on this topic. Really appreciate you taking the time to chat with us today and, and really can't thank you enough. So thank you thank for you. giving me the opportunity. It was great to chat with you all today. So that's our show. If you're interested in being a guest on the show, if you have an idea for a topic or if you have any corrections or an omission that you'd like us to recognize, please email us at farmcast, P-H-A-R-M-C-A-S-T at pharmacy.arizona.edu. Thank you.